Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. I don't know how many of you are aware that um, over the last, like two months ago, I, I had jaw surgery. They broke my jaw. They moved it forward. They're, they're trying to get it so I can, you know, live to be 63, <laughs> which is in May, by the way. Anyway, what I did learn is that it's a hereditary issue. Where the jaw sitting back, it's just... The Simon um, family tree has two branches in it, so you can imagine that things weren't moving in the right... So I found out that it's a hereditary thing, and one of my relatives actually had to have the same surgery. And he had it probably 20 years ago, you know, when um, things weren't as easily maneuvered and things weren't dealt with quite as well. And so the recovery time and everything else and the way they did it all was significantly different from the way they did it with me. And so Ole, if you, you know, my, my yeah. great uncle Ole, right? So he had the surgery. And when he came out of the hospital, they didn't, they didn't wire my jaw shut. They just put pins in it. They wired his jaw but they didn't wire it completely shut. They wired it so it was open, you know, about a half an inch. So he'd get a straw in and other things in so he could eat. Well, Sven, he felt really bad for Oli after he came out of the hospital. So he went over just to talk to him and find out how he was doing. And of course, uh, I know from experience that talking is uh, a struggle at that point. So Sven realized early on that Oli wasn't going to be doing a lot of talking, so he was going to do the talking, and Oli would just sit there and listen and kind of mumble back and forth. As they were talking, Sven noticed that there was a bowl of peanuts sitting on the table, so he just said to Oli, he goes, hey, can I have some of the peanuts? And Oli's like, yeah, go ahead, help yourself, you know, eat as many as you want. And so he's like, okay, it's really great. And they have a nice conversation. He's catching Oli up on all the things going on with Lena and, you know, life, life in town. And then he's like, okay, well, I should go now. But then when he stands up to leave, he realizes that he's just eaten all of Oli's peanuts. And so he looks and he goes, Oli, I'm so sorry. I just ate all your peanuts. He says, uh, don't worry about it, Sven. He goes, with my jaw surgery and everything, I can't chew them anyway. I just suck the chocolate off of them. <laughs> uh, by the way, if you get hungry, I got some peanuts in my office. Friends are important. Sven and Oli, I'm not sure if you want to be one of their friends or not. And by the way, uh, let me just say this. I, I, when we come to church, we need to laugh. Because we got a lot of serious stuff going on in our world. I mean, it's not just locally or in our nation, but it's around the world. There is a lot of serious stuff going on that can just really get you down. And so it's good for us to laugh. And God... God created us to laugh, and so um, it's good. But friendship is highly important, and, you know, sometimes it's, 
difficult to figure out how to be a really good friend to somebody. And sometimes we don't even have very good role models of what it looks like to have that kind of a friendship. Well, the good news is, is that the Bible puts a whole bunch of different things in there for us to learn from. And one of them is how to be a good friend. One of the greatest friendships you will ever discover is a friendship between this young little kid who became a giant slayer and anointed as the next king of Israel and his unlikely friendship with the prince of Israel. And that's Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and David, the anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. They came together and they had this friendship which is unique to this day. Matter of fact, it should be the model of all of our friendships. And, and the thing that makes this relationship so authentic and wholesome is, is just the way that they connected and bonded. It, and I'll give you the scripture here in a minute, but what, it, what, it's ref, what the scripture refers to is David went down in and killed Goliath, who was a nine-foot-tall giant. Uh, David was just a teenager, probably 14 to 16 years old, and he killed him with a rock and a slingshot. And then he chopped his head off. And after that, when David came back up on to the tent of the king, Saul, Saul's having a conversation with him. And, and here's what it says in 1 Samuel 18. It says that as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, that's David, get this, listen to this. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Those are the original soul brothers. They're the first ones. That, that, that idea of being knit, your soul knit to your friend's soul, this, this is what I, I would define as the picture of the perfect friendship. Because what happens in this relationship is there comes a point when Saul, Jonathan's dad, is so jealous of David that he tries to kill him on a number of times. And, and this friendship between Jonathan, who should be the rightful heir to the throne, but David, because of Saul's sin against God, David now has been anointed to be the king of Israel and will one day. And so Saul's trying to kill him and Jonathan steps in front of David, between David and his dad, and he says, don't kill him. This guy loves you. He's committed his life to you. you got to remember how committed he is to him. And, it, and he does this thing where he comes back, and, and it, he helps David in all this. Not only that, but there's this loyalty of commitment in this relationship to David. There's a deep love. There's this loyalty. And, and above everything else, they both share a passion for God. That's what a, a true friendship looks like. It's not just that you have similar interests. It's that you've built this relationship with each other on the foundation of the love and the commitment that you have for God 
which then is the overflow of the love and commitment and faithfulness and loyalty of a friendship. If you're struggling right now with friendship, go back into 1 Samuel around chapter 18 and just start reading about the relationship between uh, David and Jonathan. It is, it, it, it is mind-boggling how much they love each other. It's the way we should love our friends. And there are these qualities about these two men that we can learn a lot from. A few years ago, I read a book entitled The Ideal Team Player. And the premise behind the book is that if you're hiring an employee or if you're going to be creating a team of people you'll be working with at work, or if you're looking for people to join a ministry team, because it wasn't just written in a secular world, it was written with, actually with nonprofits in mind at the beginning, but it was such a great hit. That behind this premise of this book is that the author... He says that there are three virtues you need to look for in the ideal team player, someone you want to have come and participate on your team. The first virtue that he says you should be looking for is, is someone who is humble. And, and a humble person is someone who lacks excessive ego. Their ego is very small. They're, they're not concerned about their status or what they look like to other people. They're, they're quick to point out the contributions of the other people that work on the team with them. And, and they're, they're more in, uh, apt to give people praise and recognition rather than to take it for themselves. So you need to be humble. The second virtue is the virtue of hungry. Now, I'm not talking about the guy that's looking for the next all-you-can-eat buffet. That guy is not the guy they're talking about. The hungry guy or person is someone who is always looking for what they can do next. They, they're always looking to do more. They want, they want to do more things to help the company. They want to take more responsibility. They, they're always looking to see how they can best help the company in bringing ideas. They're hungry for new things. They're, they're, their whole desire is to make the company, the ministry, the team that they're working with better than they were. So they're always on the prowl for something more. Managers rarely ever have to tell them to work harder because these kind of guys, they are self-motivated and they just get the job done, but they always are bringing other people along with them. It's not for their own benefit. It's not for their own glory. They're not hungry so that they get a bigger, bigger paycheck. They're hungry because they want who they're, they believe in what they're doing, and so they want to just pour their life into it. And the third virtue is smart. It's not book smart necessarily, but it's someone who really understands the dynamics of, of the emotional intelligence of the people that they're working with. They're always looking around and they can read the room better than most. They, they, they have a, an ability to just bring other people along. They have good judgment 
and intuition about things that are going on around them and the projects that are handling. And so th the people that they work with always rely on them because they can help move things in the right direction. So you, you want to know that the kind of person that you want on your team, no matter what team it is, is that there's somebody who is humble, hungry, and smart. Those virtues aren't virtues that are just kind of like some guy, Patrick, the guy that wrote the book, he didn't just go, oh, wow. He actually, after reading the Bible, discovered that there's a lot of leaders within Scripture who were humble, hungry, and smart, and they made big impact on the world in which God placed them. One of those guys, we learn, is that way. That's part of his character. That's his, the virtues that he brings to the foreground. Is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has, he understands who he is, and he knows what his purpose in life is. There, he, he's never confused about it. He's never going down the wrong path, looking for the wrong thing, trying to go after something that God didn't give for him to go after. He absolutely understands who he is and what his job is and what his role is. Matter of fact, when he started his public ministry, he was down at the Jordan River, and this is what you find in all, four, in all of the Gospels, that John the Baptist is at the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people. It's a baptism of repentance. So what that means is the people of Israel would come to him. He would be calling them. He would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent and turn to God. And then when people would come down and they'd confess their sin and they would repent, then John would baptize them in the river for a baptism of repentance. And so people had this idea that he was the next big deal. He's the one that we need to be looking to. And so all the religious leaders in Jerusalem at the temple put a, put a delegation together and said, you guys go find out who he is and what he's all about. And so this entourage of people came and they found John the Baptist and they go, we want to know who you are. And the first thing he does is he tells them who he isn't, which is really important to know. You don't just have to know who you are, you also need to know who you're not. And John says, I want you to get this, and I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear every word of this and understand what I'm telling you. I am not the Christ. That's what they were looking for. They were wondering, is this, could he possibly be the one that has been prophesied about and that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel that God was going to send to redeem Israel? And he makes it really clear, I'm not that guy. But he said... My job is to point to that guy. Matter of fact, the way it says it in the Bible, he says, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Or, or the way that I think John would have said it, he would go, I am not the Christ, but that guy over there, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Christ. He is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He is the Holy One of Israel. That's the one you should follow. He's the guy you should put your life and trust your life with. He's Him. And everybody's going like, so you're not the guy? No, 
I'm not the guy, but Jesus is the guy. This morning, we're coming to the, the last half of John chapter 3, and this is the place where we hear from John the Baptist for the last time. Shortly after this, because, because he is a voice crying out in the desert, because he has a, a prophetic edge to him, and, and what I mean by that is a, a prophetic edge, is he's not the guy that's standing up and going, look, God wants to bless your life and make you like rich and famous. So if you open up your mouth, gold will fall from the ceiling and fill your mouth with, with gold flakes. That's not the prophetic message he gives. When, when it, in the Bible, when it says he has a prophetic message, he's the kind of guy that stands up and says, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not fornicate. And he was talking to, to uh, Herod, because Herod was a, not a good guy. And John the Baptist called him out on it, and so, so John got arrested, and then they, you know, beheaded him. So this is the last message we hear from John. And, and so let me kind of set the ground for you, give you the stage of what's, what's taking place. John is down now with his disciples, and they're at the Jordan River, and they're kind of in the wilderness. It's not like, you know, walking down to City Park to go get baptized. Uh, you have to actually put some effort into it. You have to plan for it. You have to pack a lunch. You might even take uh, your sleeping bag with you because it's not just a, a quick trip. But he is baptizing people. Across the river and up the river, just a little ways, you could see him as Jesus with his disciples. They're also baptizing people. One of the religious leaders who also was talking with John, was talking with John's disciples. And, and this guy, he likes to stir the pot, is, is kind of the way I look at it, because he says, this religious leader says to John's disciples, he goes, well, isn't that that new young rabbi over there, that young guy, uh, Jesus? Look at him. He's baptizing people too. The only problem is, he's got a larger crowd than John does. He's got more people coming than John does. What's up with that? And, the, and John's disciples were like, yeah, we were here first. Hey, this is our river. Go somewhere else. I know that line because I yell it at people that try and fly fish with me. <laughs> Get away! They're my fish! And so they come over to John and they go, John, do you see what Jesus is doing? And John goes, what's the big deal? Well, he's got everybody coming to him and he's baptizing them. All are going to Jesus now. Now listen, the disciples did exactly what we would have done if we would have been in their shoes. Because when something changes and things aren't the same and it's not going like it always went and, and things are moving in a different direction than what we're used to, what we do is we make a big deal out of nothing. And, and so then we exaggerate the situation so that people go like, yeah, that's wrong. How can they do that? 
how that's naughty. That's just naughty. Right? And, and, and so that's what the disciples are saying to John. They go and look, look how naughty Jesus is being. He's stealing all your people. Everyone's going to him. He's baptizing everyone. They exaggerated the whole thing on two levels. First of all, people were still coming to, to, to John the Baptist to be baptized. So not everyone was going over there. And the second thing is, we know this at the beginning of chapter 4, is that Jesus didn't baptize anyone. His disciples did it all. So it's the big exaggeration. Look at what he's doing. It's horrible. You're losing all your, your influence. Your popularity's going in the tank. I just checked Instagram. You're a nobody now. John. And John, because, remember, he knows who he is. He knows who he's not. And he knows what his purpose in life is. He does what a man of God would always do. And we pick it up in verse 27. And, and John replied to his own disciples, he said, No one can receive anything, get this, unless God gives it from heaven. John, John gets a, has a clear picture of what ministry looks like. John has a good hip hand on this relationship with God. He knows that if Jesus is doing something that is drawing the attention of people to, to the Father in heaven, if Jesus is pointing people to the reality of God, if Jesus is revealing to them that their sin is going to be a stumbling block from really stepping into and having a relationship with God, if Jesus is doing that, the only reason Jesus is doing that is because God the Father in heaven is the one that gave him the ability to do it in the first place. So in, in, the, in all reality, what, what John the Baptist is saying is he goes, look, it's coming from God, so there's no reason to get all tied up in a knot. It's all good. By the way, Jesus isn't our enemy. He's, he's not fighting against us. He's actually on the same team. We're doing this all for the kingdom of God. What he is doing and what I'm, and I'm glad he's doing more. I'm glad more people are going to him. He's helping families be restored. Jesus is making the, the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's feeding people. He, he's restoring relationships. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing way more than I could ever do. I'm glad he's doing that. John rejoices in the fact that Jesus is having great spiritual success. There isn't an ounce of jealousy in, in John's life about the ministry that Jesus is doing. He's thrilled with it. And, and let, me, let me make this point for you to understand where I stand on this. In this town, in Lander, in Fremont County, there we have sister churches. Let me put it to you that way. Any church that preaches Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, eternal life, we're on the same team. They're not, they're not our competitors. They're not our enemy. 
We're doing the same thing because what we're trying to do is we're trying to reach into the community of Lander and we're trying, we're doing our best to plunder hell and populate heaven. And so we're on the same team. You know what that team is called? Team Jesus. And so we're interested in the same things they're interested in. We're interested in seeing Jesus' name being glorified and people coming to faith in Christ and the trajectory, not just of their life, but possibly their entire family is being changed because they're being introduced to Jesus. So we don't bemoan the fact that they're, they're having success and that God is doing something great in their church. We should be celebrating with them. We should be going like, you guys keep going. Do more. Jesus' half-brother James put it this way. He said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Get it? Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who he was before the world created is, was created is who he is today. And who he is today is going to be the same God, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that we run into when we go to heaven. And so what, what James is saying, he's, he's saying like, if anything good is happening around you, if anything good is happening in your life, if there's anything perfect that's taking place, it's not because of anything you've done. It's all because God in heaven has gone, I am going to bless you with this. And it makes all the difference in the world. When we hear that God's moving in his church, in this town, not only do we want to celebrate it, but we also want to pray and ask God to give them more. God, do more over there. Bring more people into their church that will hear the gospel and they'll get saved. That their lives will be rescued from hell and they will be counted with those who are in heaven. God, bless them. Help their pastor to speak the truth so that hearts' lives are changed. We need to pray for them. But on the same hand, the next thing you pray for is yourself. And then you say, and I want more. Give me more. Give me more of your spirit. Give me more of your gift. Give me more ability to speak the truth. Help me to, to just speak something into somebody's life that's going to change their life for an eternity. That's what God's calling us to do. That's what he wants us to do. We want to be an ideal team player on Jesus' team. We want to be hungry. We want to be humble. We want to be smart about the kingdom of God. Peter said it like this. He says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you get that part? Use your gifts, the ones that he's given you. He's, 
He's got more gifts than you could ever imagine. And he's reaching into his box of gifts and he's giving you a gift. He might even be giving you two or three gifts. And he's saying, now take those gifts, go use those gifts to serve the, not, not the people out, out there, the people in here. Serve one another. Serve each other. So how do you do that? He says, well, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do, uh, do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. I, I just, it, it, sometimes to me it's, it, it's a mystery when somebody's asked, Hey, could you help so-and-so? They've got a need and they've got a problem. Could you help them? Oh, Lord, it's such an inconvenience. Let me, let me just check my, my, my calendar. Here, hold on a second. I'm busy. I've got a root canal. I mean, like, Jesus says, if you've got the ability to do it, you should do it. Did, did you know... Sometimes we, we like to keep track of what we would consider sin and what's not sin. And, and in that, when we consider what's sin, we go like, well, I'm not a murderer, that's for sure, and I'm not an embezzler, that's for sure. I, I might lie a little bit, but that's not a big deal. Well, actually, it's one of the seven things that God hates, as you well know from last week. But the Bible tells us that if you know that you're supposed to be doing good and you don't do the good. Look, it, it's, not, it's not this horrible, horrific sin that you're committing. It's the good thing you're supposed to be doing to help somebody else out. You know to do good and you don't do it. God says to you, that's sin right there and right then. So, back to our slide. If you'll pull that back up real quick, Stephanie. He says that God supplies this. And then catch the next phrase that says, then everything you do will do what? Mm-hmm. There is no greater joy in your life than to bring glory to God. Bring glory to God. What do you do to bring glory to God? It's one of those things that my dad told me when I was a kid. I remember going into junior high. He said, when you go up, boys, go to school today, you look to do at least one good thing for somebody at school today. When we got out of school, he said, don't forget what I told you when you were in school. Find something that you can do for somebody else. Do at least one good thing to help somebody else out every day of your life. That becomes a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your DNA when you start doing that. And that's what God's calling us to do. He wants us to do that. But what happens is far too often we forget that whether it's what we have or what we've been given, the gift or the talent or the ability, all those things that we possess, even our home and our finances, they all came to us by God's goodness and grace in our life. The, the reality is I'm not the owner of it anyway. I'm just the steward of whatever it is, my gift, my ability, my skill, 
my talent, whatever God's given to me, I'm just the steward of this thing, and God wants me to be a good steward of it. So that's what he's calling us to do, is to be good stewards of all the things that he's given to us. But the problem is, is that we forget where it came from, and so what we want to do is we want to take the credit for it, and, well, of course this is going to happen, because after all, I am so awesome. I mean, if you, if you really want to know how great I am, check out my Facebook page, my Instagram, all the followings. I mean, like, I am more popular than I ever thought I could be. I have 27 followers. Man, am I good. And, and all of a sudden, we've forgotten the entire point of it. Because Paul had to remind the Corinthian church about their competence before. They thought that they were all that in a bag of chips. And here's what Paul said to them. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. When you see that Spirit, that big S, Spirit means the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. For the letter kills, but the Spirit of God gives life. We, we, we somehow... We were so narcissistic in our thinking that we believe that we really possess all this stuff and we are that good and God really owes me something. When in fact, God's going like, oh honey, I gave that to you to help the church. I gave that to you to help the poor. I gave that to you to help your neighbor. I gave that to you so that you could be a better spouse. I gave that to you so that you could be a better dad, a better mom. He, he's given us all of these different things, and somehow we turn it around and we go like, you are so happy, to, so lucky God to have me. Back in the fall, um, we have, every year we have a number of different things that we go to as pastors. And um, one of them is a pastors and wives conference. And so this last fall, I got asked to go and play bass with a team of guys from around, around the Rocky Mountain area at the conference and play for the, the worship and praise time. And, and so it's always an interesting thing because you're bringing like six guys or gals together, six people who have never played instruments together ever, not one time. And so you, you come in and there's, there's a wide range of skill. I mean, two of the guys were actually, they went to school and have degrees in music. They were the leaders. I'm, I'm the guy back here. Um, my name is TB Player. That means the bass player. And that means I play. I've graduated, I want you to know. When I first started, I played one string on a four-string bass. I'm up to two now. I am moving up the line. So anyway, I get to play with these guys, and these guys are all really talented. One of the guys, one of these pastors, used to be a band director in a large school. He's playing drums. Another one of my buddies is playing keyboard. So we got all this thing going on. And, and it's... 
it takes a little bit of time to get into the sync and get into the rhythm and, and work with each other and figure it out. And this is the part, I mean, I love it, and then there's a part that just, I was like, you've got to be kidding me moment in my life. Because one of the two young guys that was helping lead, he wasn't the main lead guy, he was what I'd call a secondary guy, but he was very gifted on, on playing um, a lead guitar. He was very gifted. Not as good as our guys. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Hey, we, they're great. This whole team up here is great. And, and so, yeah. So one of the, the, the younger of the two guys that's leading this team in one of our practices stops and goes, okay, um, let's just take a couple of minutes so I can practice my spontaneous moment. Now, those two guys are standing in front of me because the bass player always stands at the back. And I look over at my buddy on the keyboard and I went like this. How do you practice spontaneity? I, I'm a little bit confused by that. I do admit I come from a different generation. But I was like, and I'm going to, can I get something off my chest? Yeah. Whether you were going to say yes or not, I'm going to do it anyway. So you should just agree with me. I, nobody from our church, but in the world of Christian churches and the development of our worship teams, and by the way, Christian music has come light years from where it used to be. It's amazing. There's some really great stuff, and then there's some really junky stuff that you should never sing. I'm just going to be honest about that. But the problem is, is that we have some of these new young, really talented, up-and-coming worship leaders, all of a sudden, in the middle of these magnificent times where we're praising God, they break out into, you know, they're, they're ripping it up, and then they're singing something that I have no idea what they're singing, and I don't even know where they've come from or where they're going to go with this thing, but it all becomes this spontaneous worship. It's not. It's like, take a look at me. I want you to see how gifted and talented I really am and how lucky you are to have me. It really Because if you are leading people in worship, they know where you're going and they follow you along in spontaneity thing that you practice because it can't be that, you know. So nobody knows where you're going, so you're not leading anybody. This all comes back to John the Baptist because his disciples are so upset that he's losing his popularity that he's losing his his place on the main stage because if John loses it guess what happens to them they lose it too they're riding on his coattails they're, they're not they don't have their own thing going on so they're riding along with John and they're really upset that John the Baptist is losing all this stuff and that Jesus is becoming the main guy and, and John's like, you guys, have you forgotten what it's all about? Have you forgotten why we're here? So John reminds them in verse 28. He says, and, and he reminds them about what they said about him. You yourselves bear me witness, is what he says. 
that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's going like, I play the side gig in this thing. I am not the main stage guy. I am not center stage. I do not get the spotlight. Matter of fact, I'm TV player in this whole thing. I'm back over here in the corner just plucking one string on the bass. That's all John the Baptist goes, and, and he, it's, it's an open string. It's an E. He can just pluck that one E, and he's really good at it, by the way. But what he's saying is, that guy over there, he needs to be center stage. He needs to have all of the spotlight. He needs to have all the glory because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that came from heaven. He's the one that's going to go back to the Father. He's the one that's going to have an impact on the entire world for millennials. I'm not him. Matter of fact, in verse 30, this, this is probably one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. And yet it, it comes across as kind of like, oh, because, because John, in all of what he could have been and could have taken for himself, he simply says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Those are the words we should be uttering in our life. And by the way, it's really important. The order that John put this in is huge. It's so vital to who we are or what we think of ourselves. Because John goes like, Jesus, he's the one that goes up. Jesus, his popularity needs to go through the roof. Jesus, he needs to be on the main stage. Jesus, he needs to receive all the glory, honor, majesty. Jesus, Jesus is the name that at every knee will bow to one day. Jesus, at his name, the, del- the, the demons quake at the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, demons are, are ordered to go and come. Because Jesus' name is so powerful. Jesus has got to be the main stage. That's what he's saying. Jesus must increase. He must increase. And he says, but I, I, need, to, I need to step back and let it come to G. I need, I need to get over here and let Jesus be right there. I, I, I need to go sit right there and let Jesus be right there. I need to sit right in the back row because I don't deserve to be here. Jesus needs to be here. That's what it means to decrease. It means to eliminate yourself. It means to get out of the picture. It means to let Jesus be the one who shines forth because what Jesus does is something you could never do. But if you switch that around and go like, all right, I'll decrease so that Jesus can increase. You see, you're still putting yourself out in front and you're, you're up here and you go, I'll decrease. How's that? Is that enough? But when we, when we give Jesus his rightful place, we don't, we don't ever come to the place where we're like, oh man, I'm missing out. I, I want to be famous in this whole thing. This is what I really love about uh, John. 
Instead of jealousy, John exhibited humble faithfulness to the superiority of Jesus' person and ministry. John humbled himself and exalted Jesus. I want to take you to 2 Corinthians. And it says, So we have stopped evaluating others from a human standpoint or human view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know now. This means that anyone, anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. When we enter into this new life with Jesus, who is front and center, on the very front of everything, the main stage, when Jesus becomes that person, we become a new person, our ideas about ourselves change. We recognize that the universe does not revolve around us, but that there is one who is the Son, and everything revolves around the Son. We... All of a sudden, we notice that our attitude about other people has improved. Our desire for attention has shifted from ourselves to the one who deserves it. In essence, we begin a new life. We're taking all the stuff that was a part of our old life that we had to draw attention to ourselves in order to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, and we're going, Jesus, you're all that I need. You are all sufficient for everything that I need. You've heard me um, make this quote that, that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. That's, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist saying, when Jesus is most glorified because of me pointing to him, I'm the most satisfied I could ever be in my life. Our goal, our goal as Christ followers is to bring glory to Jesus. Be the one, like John the Baptist going, I'm not him, that's him. That's him over there. He's the one that will save your life. He's the one that will redeem your family. He's the one who will give you new hope. He's the one who will help you with your finances. He's the one that will, will give you a, a different view about your job. He's the one that will bring contentment to your life. He's the one that is going to fix your marriage. He's the one that will help your children who live a thousand miles away come to faith. It's all about Jesus and it's nothing about me. In the conversation about Jesus, I can't be a part of the, the, the verbiage. Let me, let me tell you about how Jesus has helped me become who I am. Let me tell you what Jesus will do for you. He will rescue you. He will purify you from every unrighteous deed in your life. He will never hold your sin against you ever again. He will remove your wicked deeds as far as the east is from the west. And then he will adopt you into his family and call you brother, call you sister. Say, we're family. This morning, 
I want to close by just saying this to you. We inadvertently in our lives forget who we are and who we are not. We forget that we are to become the ideal team player on Team Jesus. And what that means is is that as an ideal team player, like John in my humility, I, I want to point to Jesus and I never want to point to myself. Humbly I go, Jesus is the guy. I want to be hungry for the kingdom of God. I want to point people to who Jesus is. I want them to understand what it means to walk with him. I want them to find, find all their joy, contentment, passion. Everything they want for life is found in Jesus. They don't need anything else. When you have Jesus, you have all you need. But somehow we've stepped up to the limelight. Somehow we've taken his position. Somehow we're pointing the light at ourselves and going, right here, I I can help you. When in fact we should be saying, I can point you to the one who will help you. So, if you're not experiencing all you can in your, you just feel like your life is filled with conflict, you feel like you have less joy, like there's more strife, like you just don't feel content with anything in your life, it's probably because you're on the wrong stage. You need to be on the side stage instead of the main stage. And Jesus wants to help you with that. Amen? Let's pray. If you've got your head bowed and your eyes closed, this morning, if if the Spirit of God's been speaking to you in regards to that, and, and you know that you've kind of taken Jesus' spot to have the limelight. And, and the Spirit of God's kind of spoken to you about that this morning. You want me to pray for you? Just stick your hand up and I'll pray for you. Yeah, I see that hand. I see that hand. Yep, back there in the corner. Right there. Yes, yes. I see those hands. Yep, at the back. Yep. Our Father, this morning, we thank you for the, the person of John the Baptist who you sent as the waymaker, the one who is going to identify Jesus as the Christ, the Holy One of God, the Lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And John didn't want any of the glory. He didn't want to be on the stage. All he wanted to do was to do his purpose and to do it to the best of his ability. And that was to direct people to who Jesus is. And sometimes, Father, we have to admit that we become more of a distraction than a pointer. So I just ask for every person that raised their hand, even those who didn't, that we would in our hearts set aside Christ to be king of our lives, that we would make a covenant with ourselves to give him the glory, to make him center stage of our lives. So we don't, we don't need the popularity because we want Jesus to have it. And we, and we do it for your glory, Jesus. We do it because we want you to be lifted up on high. We want you to just have everything so that people will come to know who you are and that you, you would be exalted in every aspect of our life. Help us to become ideal Team Jesus players. That we'd be humble, that we'd be hungry, and we'd be smart about the things you're calling us to do and we would glorify your name and because of it, lives homes, 
communities would be changed because of you, Jesus. We pray in your great name and all God's people said, Amen.